The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The General Services Administration says it'll keep using two labor pricing tools. The agency's inspector general says it shouldn't. The acting commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, Julie Dunn, says the IG is right that the tools don't work as well as they could. FCW reports Dunn says if the agency stops using the tools, the manual searches contracting officers would have to do would produce worse results. More on this later in the program. The Department of Veterans Affairs will change the way it presents ratings data on its medical centers. The agency's dropping its star rating system. Military Times reports each medical center will publish data on its website, including wait times, quality assessments, and patient satisfaction ratings. The Environmental Protection Agency should develop a standard to put a value on time off as a reward to employees, according to its Inspector General's office. Without that standard, the IG office says the agency can't know for sure if time off it awards for good performance is appropriate. Federal Times reports the EPA awarded more than 355,000 hours of time off between 2015 and 2017. One of the tools in the arsenal of the Air Force Special Operations Command is the Air Reserve component. But the information sharing between ARC and AFSOC may hold back both groups when it's time to mobilize. Kerry Russell's Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues, the Government Accountability Office. Kerry, welcome. Thank Thanks you. for coming on the program. Great to be here. What did you look at specifically regarding the way ARC and AFSOC communicate with each well, other? Well, what we did at the, at the direction of Congress, we looked at the Air Force Special Operations Command ability to mobilize and how they, they mobilize reserves. As, the, as reserves, as you know, or as the uh, special operations have increased over the years throughout the globe and more reliance of the military has placed on the special operations commands uh, and the reserve being a large part of that, there was a lot of interest in how well the Air Force does with reserving a special community within the reserves. What did you find when you looked at the way that these organizations communicate with each well, other? Well, what we found is there were some gaps in terms of how they coordinate. Um, particularly what we found was that as the Air Force has moved towards a more robust special forces capability, uh, the old way of doing things, which was looking for volunteers on an ad hoc basis, wasn't really working. Mm -hmm. So there were significant limitations, particularly with respect to providing enough advance notice to members of the military reserve uh, to mobilize. And so we saw those issues as well as a a lack of good knowledge on what units were available within the reserve force to support the Air Force Special Operations community. Are there parallels between the way that the Air Force does this and the way the other branches do it? Yeah, I think, well, it, I'll, I'll, let me draw um, a difference between how the Air Force, the rest of the Air Force does it and the Air Force Special Operations okay. Command. Okay, so, for example, when you look at the Air Force Combat Command or Air Force Mobility Command, which has a robust reserve uh, component, uh, they have cells or organizations within their commands that have full-time personnel manned that manage nothing but reserves, planning years out the availability reserves, the requirements, and all those things. The Special Operations Command doesn't have that same model. They have more or less individuals that are working at more part-time mm -hmm. and don't have that robust planning commission or, or capability. So what that means is they're unable to provide some of the long-term planning and really providing that stability and predictability that you would want in your reserve force. What is your sense or what did your work reveal 
reveal about how that happened, what is, how it grew up that way. Yeah, I think, well, you go back in time when, when the, uh, the use of special operations were less robust, mm. you will see that what they, they did, the individual volunteerism, they called it, worked fine for them. It's when, the, when they got a larger amount, more requirements, more people, longer duration, that all of a sudden that planning uh, or lack of planning capacity really became an issue. It sounds, and the way that your report reads, this is like almost an overcoming of events, like things have just developed, evolved in a way that the system was not prepared for in this I think that's a good case. way to characterize it. And, and to the Air Force's credit, they recognize this and they're trying to get the resourcing in order to build this capacity to provide better planning and better stability in that process. Um, it seems to always come back to the money at the Pentagon. This report says AFSOC officials stated the command command's operations center submitted requests to HQ for additional resources, but the requests were not funded in fiscal years 18 or 19. Is that the major step in your view? It, it is. It's, it's a big part of it. There's also a data sharing that needs to happen in the reserves, providing information on the availability of reserve forces and mm -hmm. tracking those reserve personnel. That could be improved as well. But mm -hmm. it comes down to a resource issue and, and, you know, they put together proposals. The question becomes, as you compete with other resources and demands, it hasn't quite yet met uh, the requirements to get it funded at this point. So about the information sharing, you write in this report, the uh, ARC doesn't provide AFSOC with complete information regarding which of its units could be used to support AFSOC requirements for special operations activity. What information specifically is lacking and what would you like to see ARC do to provide that information sure. up the chain? That's a good question. To compare it with the rest of the Air Force, there's a force generation model in place that what it does is it maps out what forces are available, when they're available, where their readiness is, and then it lines up requirements over time against that. The Air Force Special Operations Command doesn't have that capability, and so the information that's missing is a good picture of the availability of units over time, mm -hmm. and then requirements laid against that so that a more informed and long-term planning can, decision can be made with respect to employing those forces. How granular is the information that AFSOC should have from ARC? Should it be just this many aircraft, this many people, or qualifications of the people, capabilities of the aircraft, what, what would yeah, make sense? It should be all that, but you know, it's particularly the skills, because special operators have very distinct skill sets, you know, based on by definition of what they are. And so knowing where those are and the availability of those personnel and those units is critical. And that's one of the things that they could do better at in terms of providing that picture to the command. All right, three recommendations and walk me through each of those, Karen. Sure, all right, well, so the first recommendation, as I mentioned, is to establish that planning capacity mm -hmm. uh, within the uh, Air Force Special Operations Command so they can more deliberately plan long-term and provide the advance notice to units. The second uh, two recommendations after that go towards this, the uh, reserve component, and that is providing information on the availability of units and when they're available, uh, much like the Air Force uh, Force Generation model provides for the rest of the Air Force. And then it's also to provide tracking for individuals which are in the, in the reserve component, the, the amount of time they've deployed. As, as I mentioned, they had a process before where they used volunteers, and under using the volunteer process, they're not as, as, as carefully tracked. And so in order to maintain op-tempo um, uh, requirements, making sure that people have rest time in between deployments, tracking that is critical, and that needs to be done better. We have about a minute left, and the theme that I hear among all three of those recommendations is, especially the first two, is, they should, AFSOC should do what 
other parts of the Air Force do. So the models already exist for these uh, recommendations to be put into place, it sounds like. Right, I think so. You know, considering they have special requirements mm -hmm. and recommend or things that they need to do that has to be taken into consideration, but, but paralleling some kind of a process or capability similar to what the rest of the Air Force has done would work. And then it's a two-way street. The Air Force Command needs to have a better planning capability, but then the Air Force, the reserve component, needs to provide better information to that, and then together they can make more informed, long-term, deliberate decisions. Kerry Russell, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Coming next, a data download problem at the General Services Administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, fixing that data problem to cut contract costs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Be right back. Two tools the Federal Acquisition Service uses to count how much labor costs don't work as well as they could. GSA's Inspector General finds problems with the data from both the Contract Awarded Labor Category Tool and the Contract Operations Division Contractors Database Tool. That means the government could be overpaying on contracts. Jim Williams is former acting administrator at GSA. He's now a partner in Shamback and Williams Consulting. Jim's great to see you, my friend. What's your takeaway from what the Inspector General writes about these two tools? Well, I think the Inspector General did a great job of analyzing the, the tool, the use of the tool, and everything they're saying, I think they're correct. Uh, and I think Julie Dunn made the right decision to say, I'm not going to stop using this tool. Mm -hmm. However, I think there is something about, you're talking about labor, you're talking about services, and we're talking about one dimension of contracting, which is price. And if you're talking about services or labor, don't try and beat down the price too low because you're buying people and you get what you pay for. What's the thumbnail behind these two tools? What do they do and what do personnel inside GSA use them for? Well, theoretically, they aggregate pricing that has been paid before for similar labor. And then when the GSA contracting officers are renegotiating the mass schedules for services or labor for these labor prices, they use them as a price comparison. Mm -hmm. You're getting at one of the ongoing challenges of pricing comparisons, not just for these tools, but and not just the GSA, all across government. Everybody that contracts anything that isn't a commodity, which is how do you compare basically apples and oranges? That's what I read when I read this Inspector General's report. Well, I, I, right I think you're right, and I think you said something important. Services or labor are not commodities. Mm -hmm. However, I do think you need some database or some source to say, is it a reasonable price? But my concern is when you're talking about a price, and the IG was correct in their analysis, but again, they're focused on how do you get to the lowest price. But there's no correlation to quality. So even if you paid for this particular labor person at this hourly rate, rate did you get quality service? Was the customer happy with it? And that part is missing. Where does that come from? And, and again, this gets at the crux of a challenge that everybody's having all across the contracting community, all across government, is how do you measure quality of a service provided, whether it's a labor service or a consultation service or any other service, how do you measure how good it is to then translate that into value? Well, theoretically, the CPAR system, the Contractor Performance Assessment Reporting System, is supposed to be how did you evaluate the contractor's performance from a quality standpoint? And if you could link that together 
with the price you paid, then you're then you're thinking like the average consumer mm -hmm. when they look at both quality and price and make a decision. And I think <clears throat> again here, focusing only on how do you lower price for services. And in fact, in the IG example, they say it should be $114 an hour, not $130 for I think a in, uh, information technology security engineer. Well, you're competing with the private sector. Mm -hmm. Do you really want to try and lower the price? Because if you go for too low a price, the co government customer may be not happy with the service. They may have to use more hours for that person who's not as good as the other $130 person. Well, and I'm certainly an amateur, and, and you're a professional at this with a lot, uh, tons of experience, but it strikes me as I read this report, I thought I could see a tool like they're suggesting that helps you determine if somebody's proposing 500 an hour for something that is in the range of 114 to 130, that's not good. We want to be able to eliminate that. I have a harder time thinking that it's a science to separate between 114 and 130. That strikes me that that's really an art and that might be up to the eye of the beholder. I agree with you completely and that's why the benefit of having some price comparison is necessary. And I think Julie Dunn agreed. Lots of things need to change. Uh, the data going in, uh, how the, uh, the data is used, looking at how do the uh, contracting officers look at things like standard deviation, which I think the IG's right. You know, there's, if a standard deviation is low and there's a low dispersion of values, then it's probably useful. If it's very wide, from $500 down to $50, it's not that useful. Regarding the data that's coming into these databases, do you think it's more quality or quantity or maybe both that needs to be better in order for these tools to work? Or is maybe one takeaway from the IG's report that these tools aren't maybe the right tools, that we're not measuring the right stuff to get the right answers. No, I, I think it's a, a good tool that, that can be improved. And it's not only about getting it accurate, but getting it relevant. Mm -hmm. So that when you're making a comparison of a labor category you're looking at under a particular schedule, how do you make sure it's apples and apples to other prices paid? And again, with those other prices paid, was there quality behind that? And I think GSA has the ability also to use unpriced uh, schedules, which they should, because if you're talking about buying solutions, then you should care much more about the end cost, the end price of that solution, not necessarily the individual labor prices. Is there an intersection here with the overall schedules consolidation? Is this a, a component, have some effect, or is this kind of a separate issue? I think view? it's a little bit separate, but it's okay. a, an important issue. It's very important because you don't want to go back to something where you don't have a database. And that's what Julie's saying, that you know we have something today. It's not perfect. We'll work to make it better. And she said, we'll work together at the IG to get their input. And I think that's a good approach. About 30 seconds left, Jim. What will you watch as this moves forward? Well, I, I think you watch is uh, what will GSA do next to improve the tool? And, and how will they make sure that they understand that when you're buying labor and services or solutions, care about the quality behind those pricing? Jim Williams, thanks as always, my friend. Thank you, Francis. Up next, a bigger budget and bigger oversight. Straight ahead on Government Matters, big funding increases mean higher expectations for results. Mark Foreman's next to talk about that. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
A bigger federal budget should mean more spending on information technology in the new year, but more money doesn't necessarily equal more modernization. Mark Foreman's vice president of digital government for Unisys Federal. He's former eGov administrator, the Office of Management and Budget, former federal CIO. Mark, it's great to see you. Thank you for coming on. Happy New Year. You got six points on this list, and I think they're all really interesting. But the one that jumped out at me as far as what you're forecasting for 2020, modernization will not go mainstream. Modernization is what Suzette Kent, your successor, is talking about over and over and over again. Why do you think that it won't go mainstream in the coming year? Just looking at the budget, the uh, appropriations bill that recently passed has a lot of mentions on IT systems and uh, cybersecurity information sharing. But when you actually look at what's the spending on modernization, it's $100 million for SSA, a few million here, a few million there. It's probably not even $2 billion. That's less than 2% on a $100 billion IT budget. Mm -hmm. And we're still talking about 85%, 80, and the numbers range anywhere from 80 to 90% of IT budgets going to O&M, going to just perpetuating the stuff we already have. Is that your concern, that you don't see that dynamic changing? That's right, and uh, there are a couple of factors that play into that. Uh, first of all, most of this is considered IT modernization. And, and the truth is over the last maybe 10 years, there is a separation between what people in the commercial world called IT and OT. IT being IT infrastructure, mm -hmm. OT being operational application of the technology, operational technology. In the government, we have a similar thing. We have the applications, and those sit within the programs. And then increasingly, and, and it's something certainly we started when I was at OMB, a focus on how do you generate shared services? How do you have a consolidation of the IT because we had too much redundant IT? So a lot of the consolidation has continued to move forward around the infrastructure, uh, virtualization, for example. The cloud smart strategy and the reason why it's so important that Suzette and the other CIOs keep talking about modernization is really about making the convergence between the applications of the operational technology and the IT that's considered infrastructure. How do we take advantage of web services, serverless computing, low code, not to modernize the IT, but to modernize the operations of government. You've got six trends here that you're expecting to see in 2020, and it's, ter it's a terrific list. I'm going to buzz through them, but I want to ask you about one other one. You write, uh, number one, overall IT spending should go up. Number two, cybersecurity will continue to be a priority. Number two, uh, three, only two department CIOs required by appropriators uh, to approve IT spending, and you're, we'll talk about that one in a moment. Number four was modernization won't go mainstream. Number five, 2020 will be a year of experimentation. And number six, uh, 2020 will be the year agencies gain and share understanding of how best to apply cutting edge technologies. Five and six to me seem to tie together the experimentation because the technology that you're talking about, Cloud Smart, TBM, technology business management, and evidence based decision making, what's the intersection of those two, Mark? There has to be a business case for change. You need a business case to get the political leaders, the workers who are actually using the technology in the field to get the job of government done, and to understand what's the best alternative. You know, if there's one thing you learn about 
whether it's looking at Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, the major cloud providers are segmenting the market. Uh, I know you've had um, Tony talk about what Microsoft's doing and their heavy focus on productivity of the government worker. There's a lot of benefit in that, but how does that play off against some of the other capabilities that are available for cloud provider? I think that a lot of the agencies don't have uh, a clear way to understand where the benefit lies, where is that golden, nug golden nugget, and it can't be at the IT infrastructure. So you got to do some experimentation. You got to prove it to yourself and to the workers at that point of service. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the user experience as well. And it's easy to put lipstick on a, a bulldog <laughs> with this, these user design concepts. But how do you take advantage of serverless computing? How do you make it so you're not locked into that legacy infrastructure? These trade-offs that exist are what agencies are supposed to look at in cloud smart. Now, that's converging with another trend that underlies this, this movement towards evidence-based policy making. The data analytics, the use of robotics and AI. Uh, again, until you experiment and become comfortable, how does that actually deliver business benefit to the citizen in your agency? It's hard to imagine this. And then TBM costing it out. Mm -hmm. Because agencies are going to have to do more than a few million dollars of investment here or there. We are really talking about a modernization of the government, not the modernization of the IT. Technology business management, we have about a minute left, Mark. TBM is maybe, it seems to me as an, as an outside observer, the most important element of all of that because it, it gets into all of those pieces that you just outlined. Am I reading it right? I think it's a, a key element. It's a necessary but not sufficient mm -hmm. element. I really think the most important um, component of this is the evidence-based policy making okay. and the learning agendas. Uh, how do you actually achieve that performance improvement for the policies, the programs of the government? That's got to be the focus. Mark Foreman, thanks as always, my friend. Thank you. You can stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or simply tell your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of nonpartisan government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. I'm Cherise Hanner. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory, and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. 
Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.